man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Please open your Bibles to the book of Haggai. The book of Haggai. If you don't know where Haggai is, you can go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the New Testament. Just flip three books back, and you'll find Haggai. So it's like the, it's almost at the end of the Old Testament, okay? So if you go uh, Matthew, Mark, and just go a few books back. If you don't have a Bible, there's a pew Bible, black hardcover in the pew in front of you. If you turn to page 839, you'll find the book of Haggai, the prophecy of Haggai. Haggai is made up of four short sermons and a story. I'll tell the story in a little bit. This was written 520 BC. We have a very exact date for this book. It tells us in verse 1 when this book was written, when these prophecies were given. In the year 520 BC. Now, Israel was exiled in 586 B.C. The, the temple of Jerusalem was destroyed. And 605 was when Daniel, you remember Daniel, lion's den? Daniel, as a young man, was taken from Israel to Babylon in 605 B.C. And so now in 539 B.C., the emperor has allowed Israel to go back home and rebuild the temple. That's in 539 B.C. And so this is written in 520 B.C., so 16 to 19 years after the return from the exile. And so let's read Haggai 1.1, and we'll just read verse 1 because we're going to read through the rest of the book as we get through the sermon. So Haggai 1.1, hear the word of the Lord. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. To Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Actually, I'll go to read verse 2 as well. The Lord of Armies says this, These people say, The time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. This is the word of the Lord. May his word dwell richly among us. Father, we pray now that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things here in your word. We pray that you would incline our hearts to your word, to want your word more than wanting to know what's left on the news or on our phones, any notifications. Help us to want to know you and your word more than everything and anything right now, we pray. Unite our hearts to fear your name. Give us a singular focus on you for this hour. Satisfy us this morning with your new covenant love in Christ, sealed by his blood, that we would rejoice and be glad in you all the days of our lives. Clarify our vision. Push us to see ourselves clearer and then to draw to you nearer. Help us, we pray. Help us to preach. Help me to preach. Help us to hear, for your spirit is with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. After attending two funerals this week, a wake where I preached on Wednesday and a burial on Friday, I can't help but think about the meaning of life and what will be said at the end of our lives. Are we doomed to fleeting futility for all the days of our lives? Or can we experience flourishing fulfillment in our lives here and now? I mean, in light of the fact that we are all, we are all going to die. What will, what, what will be said of you at your funeral? 
What do you want people to say about you at your funeral? What do you want your church to say about you? What do you want your neighbors to say about you? What do you want your family to say about you at your funeral? What will you want to be? What what will you want to have been and what will you want to have done when you stand before King Jesus, the judge? We keep striving in our lives and trying to get our goals. That's how we live. We live from goal to goal to goal, right? We just have our next thing to do and our next thing to do. And that's not bad. That's actually good to have our next goal. But even when we reach certain benchmarks in our lives, in our families, in our jobs, even when we reach these goals, we seem to never be fulfilled. Kevin Durant, one of the former Golden State Warriors, he's an NBA player, he moved very controversially to his team to win a championship. And in doing that, after winning, he said, after winning that championship, I learned that much hadn't changed. I thought it would fill a certain void. It didn't. That's when I realized in the off season, so he thought the championship would fulfill his life. It didn't do it. So then here's a solution. That's when I realized in the off season that the only thing that matters is this game of basketball and how much work you put into it. Everything else off the court, social media, perception isn't important. What people say, how they view you, that's not important. What we did as a team was special, and I want to experience that again. My love and passion for the game has blossomed because I understand that's what it's all about. And I'm pouring all of this newfound thirst into this game. But I know I have to keep my fire under control, and I will. Championships don't fulfill. What fulfills? If I just focus on the game itself, just enjoying the game. There is something to stopping and smelling the roses, right? So there's some wisdom in that. But if you're going to find your ultimate fulfillment in enjoying the game, it's ultimately futility, ultimately meaningless. Because when you're long gone and retired and those, those games were last year and then two years ago and then 10 years ago and then 30 years ago and no one cares anymore about those games, even you, you will feel the futility of devoting your, lives, your life to such a thing. For you, it's not basketball. We have no NBA players in our church. But for you, it's other games, other things that you pursue. Why are we still not happy and fulfilled? Does God mean for us to be content and fulfilled? Or does he mean for us to never be content and fulfilled? Of course, God doesn't enjoy our misery and intend our, our misery as his people. But God wants us to enjoy the fulfilled life by keeping our eyes on him and seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. And the book of Haggai helps us with this. So let me tell you the story of Haggai. We're going to read through the two chapters as we go through the book. But let me just tell you the story of Haggai. And then from there, we will start to walk through it. Okay. So I'm going to sort of preach what Haggai would have been if I was preaching to those people in that day or in that first audience. And then I'll, or the rest of the time, I'll preach it to you. So here's the story. They were exiled in Babylon, like I said, in 605, and then 586, the temple's destroyed. All of the Israelites in the exile are now in Babylon, and now they're under Persia. The Persian Empire sends them back, the Emperor Cyrus sends them back to rebuild the temple. In 539, 537, somewhere around there, they're back in the land of Canaan, the land of Israel, back in Jerusalem, and they begin rebuilding the temple around 537 to 539 BC with Zerubbabel. So they try to rebuild the city. I mean, imagine if you, if you um, I just listened on the news this week about one area in, I think it was Iraq, that was overran by ISIS, 
And now the people are trying to rebuild their communities, but also there's not enough infrastructure, and so um, ISIS might or some other terrorist group can take over. Imagine going back to your house after five years, like everything just being ran out of, of your city for five years, and then all of us are coming back. You'd start rebuilding, right? You'd fix the things that are broken, you'd fix the vandalism, and you'd start fixing things up, and that's what they're doing, but they were gone for 80 years. Now they're back in their land. And so they start rebuilding the temple, you know, um, they start rebuilding the wall, Nehemiah leads in rebuilding the wall, and Ezra starts teaching the people again. And so they're trying to rebuild society and restructure Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. So the returnees, they wanted to reestablish the temple, they wanted to reestablish Jerusalem, and they wanted to experience what Ezekiel prophesied when they were in exile. In Ezekiel 40 through 48, Ezekiel prophesied this big, beautiful temple where God would be and God's presence would be. It was almost this new creation end time temple with flourishing and peace. It was over the top in terms of its description, way better than Solomon's temple. So they rebuilt, they start rebuilding this temple, but there's a problem when they started rebuilding this temple. As they began to rebuild the temple, they had resistance. Their neighbors were were discouraging them and attacking them and setting up obstacles and even legal troubles. Their back was hurting. They were sleepy. They were a little bit busy that day. They had other errands to run that day. And so, so they eventually ended up stop, stopping the, the temple building project. It was hard to rebuild the temple. And they, when they found resistance, enough resistance, they ended up just saying, you know, we'll do it later. So they got discouraged. But then they'd read their Bible. They'd remember Ezekiel's prophecy and say, but there's this, supposed to be this glorious temple when Christ is, well, not Christ, when God is going to bring this new creation back what about the temple? And so you'd remember the prophecies. You'd look at that dinky little, it was not even a temple yet, just the platform where the temple used to be. And you'd look at all the ruins and you'd get discouraged. Are God's promises even real? Is he even gonna come? Is it ever gonna happen? So they were disappointed, even on the borderline of cynical after being discouraged. So they just decided to wait and do other things in the meantime. Maybe God will eventually just come and fulfill his promise. And so they don't build a temple. They stop building a temple for one year, for two years, for three years, for four years, five years, six years, seven years, eight years, nine years, 10 years, all the way up to 16 years, at least, of not building the temple. And then in 520, God sends Haggai with a series of messages. Four prophecies. The first prophecy is rebuild the temple and obey. The people obey with enthusiasm. So that's chapter one. He tells them rebuild the temple. He rebukes them for their sin. They rebuild the temple. They start rebuilding the temple and they obey because God's spirit works in them. And then in chapter two, the second prophecy, God encourages them that his glory will fill this new house. So keep on building. And then the third prophecy is even though you're a defiled and sinful people, God will still bless you and he'll bless you again. So keep going. And then the fourth prophecy God will reverse the curse in some sense on Jeconiah, King Jeconiah's descendants, by promising to make Zerubbabel, his grandson, his signet ring of authority over against the pagan nations. So there it is, four prophecies. Rebuild the temple, keep going, because I'll fill it with my glory. Keep going, because I will bless you even though you're defiled, and I will restore Jeconiah's um, grandson as my signet ring. So those are the four prophecies of Haggai. So will the people finish the temple? Did the people finish the temple? Haggai doesn't tell us. 
Haggai ends before the story ends of the temple being rebuilt. But the answer is that the temple was rebuilt. The temple would be rebuilt. And so they did rebuild the temple, and they would draw near to God in it. And so the main command of this whole book is in chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. So let's look at chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. I'll tell you what the main command would have been to, um, to them and then what it is to us today. So chapter 1, verse 7, the Lord of armies says this, think carefully about your ways, go up into the hills, go, bring down lumber, and what? And what? Build the house, and I'll be pleased with it, and be glorified, says the Lord Yahweh. So there's the main command. Think carefully, examine yourself, examine your priority, and finish God's house so that you experience flourishing and fulfillment rather than fleeting futility. That was the command to them. So the main goal for the hearers was, hey, you guys built this 16 years ago, pick up the building project and finish it so that, um, so that you would see that your end time priority is this temple. So what about when it was done? It was done four years later. After this book, four years later, the temple's done. What about everyone else who thinks about Haggai's prophecy? What's the application to them? So if you're reading this book after 516 BC, how would this apply to you? Because the temple's already built. You'd read a book like this and you'd say, okay, my main goal in life from this passage is to examine myself, to think carefully about my ways and examine my priority and seek the end time new creation temple that Ezekiel prophesied. Because this one clearly isn't it. That would have been the, prof- that would have been the way to fulfill or to obey that, this passage in the following years. Because they would have thought, where's this new creation temple? I mean, I see this temple that we built, but where is it? What is it? When is it going to come? When does this new creation temple come? Does anyone here know? Church family? When does the new creation temple of God come? Anyone want to guess? With Christ? Okay, that's a good guess. Yes, with Christ. Where else is the new temple in the New Testament? Who, where? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit coming into God's people. And then one other thing at the very end. When is the new creation finally here? In the new heavens and the new earth, right? Where the whole earth is the temple of God, the Holy of Holies, okay? And those are all three right stops along the way, okay? Jesus Christ, the church, and then the new creation to come. So how does this apply to us? Am I going to say, let's build a new building for the church? No, that's not the right application here. That's not the first application. Should we go back to Jerusalem and take out that mosque and put the temple back there? Is that what we're supposed to do? No, that's not the right application. What are we supposed to do? First, we've got to think about the Bible in the canon. So let's think about the New Testament. When Jesus comes onto the scene, it says in John 1.14, John 1.1, God is the Word, Jesus. The Word was God. And then John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God the Son became a man, and he lived among us. God living on earth. And when God lived on earth, in the next chapter, in John chapter 2, Jesus kicks people out of the temple, this temple that was rebuilt and remodeled by Herod. Um, he, Jesus kicks people out of the temple, and then, they say, and then Jesus says to them, or they say to Jesus, what authority do you have to clear this temple? You know what Jesus says? Destroy this temple in three days, and I'll rebuild it. And they said, it took us 46 years to, re- to remodel this temple. You're going to build in three days? And Jesus walked away and didn't explain it. But later... And in John chapter 2, it is explained. What was Jesus talking about? What temple would be rebuilt in three days? His body. So we learn from Jesus that the ultimate temple is not that building. It's his body. Jesus himself would be the temple. And when would he be destroyed? After, before the three days. He would be destroyed where? On the cross. Jesus Christ came into the world to die on the cross for sinners. 
He gave his body. When he broke the bread, that was a symbol of his body being broken, not that his bones were actually broken, but that, his, that he gave himself and it was, he was destroyed. He was damned on the cross. If you're not a Christian, just listen for one minute here. This is the main message of Christianity. If you want to tune out, just tune out after this. But here's the main message of Christianity. The main message of Christianity is that God made everyone, and he made humans in his image. He made you to know him and enjoy him. But guess what? We don't want to enjoy that God. We want to enjoy our own gods, our own ideas, our own treasures. And so we rebelled against God. We don't want God on his terms. He's not beautiful to us. He's not fun. He's not attractive. We don't want that God. We don't want the God who created us. And that God calls that sin. And the wages of sin, the penalty of sin is death, eternal death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so God sends his son into the world to live the life we should have, did, should have lived. He died on the cross. His temple, in that sense, was broken, was destroyed. He died on the cross for sinners. And after three days, he rebuilt the temple. He rose from the dead. And in his resurrected body, he secured salvation for every single sinner who would ever believe in him. So if you're a sinner here, and we all are, if you want forgiveness of sins and life everlasting with Christ, then you need to repent from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ to save you. Call on Jesus to save you. He is Lord. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you're not a Christian, trust in Jesus and repent from your sins. He is the temple that was raised in three days. Now, after Jesus was raised, he went up to heaven. So where's the temple now? Well, 10 days later, the Holy Spirit came down and he dwelt. The Holy Spirit took up residence where? In who? In us, in the people, in the Christians. So now the church is the temple of God. The church is the expanding presence of God in this world. So listen to Ephesians 2.20. Ephesians 2.20 says this. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, talking about the church, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. So who is God's building? The church. Who is God's temple? The church. You are being built up in the temple. The church is being built up by the members of the church, gospelizing and discipling one another inside the church, strengthening and nurturing this church so that we nurture and strengthen others outside. We share the gospel outside of these walls, outside of this community. And when non-Christians hear the gospel, the word of Christ, faith what? Faith what? Comes, right? It comes by hearing. So we gospelize the word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing and you get another building block to the church. Another member gets baptized and joins the church. What's just happening? The church is being built up. How does the church being built up? By the members gospelizing each other and influencing and discipling each other and then gospelizing and influencing the world. And the church is being built up. Ephesians 4, 15 to 16 says, speaking the truth in love, let us grow the church in every way into him who is the head Christ. For from him, from him the whole body fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament promotes the growth of the body for building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. So where is God's holy temple today? It's the church. But PJ, there's a lot of churches. You just prayed for like four other churches today. Erbil International Church in Iraq, Baptist Church in Iraq. Is that the temple or is this the temple? Answer, yes. Every local church is a local expression of the universal global church the universal church, Christians in heaven and on earth. Every church 
is the physical representation. These 89 members gathering together today, you members of the church, as you gather here, you are a physical representation of the universal church gathered around Christ in heaven, according to Hebrews chapter 12. All saints are gathered around Christ spiritually right now. And as we gather here around Christ, we are the expression of all the saints everywhere of all time. Isn't that amazing? You come to a gathering like this, you look around, it doesn't look that significant, but you are representing the universal church right here in your gathering. So what's the main goal today? If the main goal then was build, a, build up the temple, what's the main goal today? If the main goal for them was examine yourselves, examine your priority, and build up the temple so that you experience flourishing fulfillment instead of fleeting futility, what's the main goal for us today from this passage? If the temple is the church today, what's the main goal for us? Examine your priority and build the church so that you experience flourishing fulfillment rather than fleeting futility. Examine your priority. That's the message of Haggai. Let's look at it. If we're going to examine our priority and build the church, if the main call is to examine ourselves and build the church, I want to give you four reasons why you should build the church. Four reasons, or is it five reasons? Five reasons why you should build the church. The first one is the longest, and then they get shorter after that, okay? Five reasons why you need to build the church as your priority. Reason number one, build the church because God makes everything else futility in your life. Build the church because God makes everything else futility in your life. Let's look at verse two or verse three. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you yourselves to live in paneled houses while the house, this house lies in ruins? Now the Lord of armies says this. Think, here's the command. Think carefully about your ways. They were spending their time building what? Their own what? Their own houses. They're building their own houses. Think carefully about your ways. Examine your priority. Verse six, you have planted much, but have, how much have you harvested? Little. You eat, but you're never, you never have enough to be satisfied. You drink, but never have enough to be happy. You put on clothes, but never have enough to get warm. The wage earner puts his wages into a bag with a hole in it. So God commands them to think carefully. Their crops, their food, their clothes, their wages are never enough. They're never enough. So what does God command them to do in verse seven? Think carefully about your ways. Go up into the hills, bring down lumber and build the house, build my temple and I will be pleased with it and I will be glorified, says the Lord. And so look, we read on about the futility here as they're commanded to build the house. Look at verse nine. Here's this futility that I'm talking about. All else becomes futility. Look at verse nine. You expected much, but then it amounted to what? Little. You went for a basketball championship, you expected much, it amounts to what? Little. You focus on the NBA game, you think it's much, it amounts to little. Whatever you focus on in this world, you think it's going to amount to much? It's going to amount to little. Futility. When you brought the harvest to your house, I ruined it. God says he ruins it. He ruins NBA championships. He ruins crops. He ruins these things. Does that sound mean? Look at verses 10 and 11. What else does he do? So on your account, the skies withheld the dew and the land its crops. I stopped the rain. I stopped the crops. Look at verse 11. I have summoned a drought on the fields and the hills, on the grain, new wine, fresh oil, and whatever the ground yields, on man and animal, and on all that your hands produce. Everything you do, everything you pursue, all your ambitions, all your dreams, all your goals, I make it little. I make it futile. I make it meaningless. You put all your energy into it, so much, and it becomes little. 
And God says, to quote him again, I ruined it. I ruined it. God intentionally ruins our earthly ambitions. Isn't that amazing? Let me say it another way. Not only does God intentionally ruin our earthly ambitions, God mercifully ruins our earthly ambitions. Praise God that he ruins our earthly ambitions. God tells us to seek first the what? First the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all your needs will be what? Added to you. But when you seek your needs as your priority and not his kingdom, guess what? You will be dominated by fear, worry, delusion. Fear and worry on the one side because you know you can't get it all or you'll, be, you'll think you're at peace on the other side and you'll be deluded. But either way, you'll end up with fleeting futility rather than flourishing fulfillment. Does God want to make sure that you have food and drink and shelter? 1 Timothy 5.8 says, If anyone doesn't provide for his own family, especially his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel, says the King James. One of my favorite King James words. An infidel, an unbeliever. That's right. Does God want you to provide? You're saying, PJ, so I'm just supposed to build, are all of us supposed to work full-time for the church? God doesn't want me to provide for my household. Is that true? No. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, You have to work. Men, you have to work to provide for your households. Does God want us to love our spouse and serve our children or not? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Parents, don't provoke your children to wrath, but raise them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. If any man can't manage his household well, he can't be an overseer of God's household and manage the household of God. Does God want us to neglect our homes for the sake of the church? No. No. Does he want us to care for our provisions and care for our families and for, for our needs? Yes. But listen to this. It is a prerequisite to leadership in the church. And it fits you and forms you even more for your discipling ministry. Brothers and sisters, especially families, listen to this. Parenting and family and providing for your household is ministry, isn't it? It is ministry. When gospelizing and influencing people towards Jesus is happening. But... Parenting and providing for your household and families and your careers is not only ministry itself, but it is also, um, it, it's also a ministry that fits you and provides the means for you to build up the church as the disciple-making community because your job is not the disciple-making community and your campus ministries are not the disciple-making community and your small groups and your friendships are not the disciple-making community. The church is the temple of God, the disciple-making community where the Holy Spirit dwells as a people ministering and expanding our gatherings. And from our gatherings, as we expand, we're sent back into the world. So we gather for a Sunday, we encourage each other, and we're sent back into the world for another week. If family and job and your school are your only ministries, then you have lost your priority. I'll say that again. If your job and your school and your family are your only priority and the church is not your priority, you've lost your priority. And they're not all priorities, by the way. God calls you to think carefully, so let's think carefully here. Seeking first the kingdom of God is inextricably tied to building up a Christ-centered, Christ-shaped, and Christ-expanding local church. In a sense, parenting and providing for your household is required. It is a prerequisite. Notice it's a prerequisite. 
You know what prerequisites are, right? If you're, if you're studying to become a nurse because your career goal is to be a nurse, you might have biology or human anatomy as a prerequisite, not even in, your, not even in the nursing program yet, right? It's just a prerequisite. Now, will you need to know human anatomy and biology to be a good nurse? Yes. Is that all you need? No. Is that, if you only focus on biology and human anatomy and you only focus on your prerequisites, will you be a good nurse? No, it's a prerequisite, but not a priority. Think carefully about this. Think carefully. Prerequisite is not priority. Let me say that again. Prerequisite is not priority. Prerequisites are blessings, and they shape you for your priority, but they are not your priority. If you do biology and human anatomy, and, you never, and your goal is to be a nurse, but you never end up nursing people, you haven't hit your priority. The only value, the main value of human anatomy and biology is to fit you for your calling, right? Family is prerequisite, not priority. Career is prerequisite, not priority. The temple of God is priority. Oversimplifying biblical truth that it is prerequisite, when you oversimplify that, if you oversimplify biblical truth, it distorts biblical truth. That's what Satan does, right, in Matthew 4 with, with Jesus when he's tempting him. He quotes scripture. You're supposed to care for your family. If you don't provide for your household, you're worse than an infidel. True. But there are still priorities in the Bible. There is a priority, and providing for your household is a means to your priority, not the priority, but prerequisite. Matthew 10, 37, Jesus says, the one who loves father or mother more than me is not what? Worthy of me, and the one who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What is Jesus saying? PJ, is he saying, PJ, he's not saying love the church more. He's saying worthy of me. He's saying love me more. PJ, you're getting it wrong. It's not the church, it's Jesus. Love Jesus more than your family, not love the church more than your family, or love Jesus more than your family. Don't put, don't put Jesus above your family, but don't put the church as a priority over your family. PJ, you're getting it wrong. He doesn't say follow the temple, he says follow Jesus. But what did Jesus do? He left his family, and he discipled people. Do you remember when his mom and his brothers came and sisters, and they expected a VIP pass, backstage passes to see Jesus? And they said, Jesus, he's teaching people in Mark chapter 3, and he says, your mom and your brothers and sisters are here. And Jesus says, who's my mom and my brothers and sisters? These people here are my mother and brothers and sisters. The ones who do the will of God is my brother and brother and sisters. What was Jesus' priority? The people who are following Christ. That was his priority. So if you're going to follow Jesus, not the church, okay, follow Jesus. But what is Jesus' priority? Is it his family? Is it his mom? He made sure he took care of his mom. Remember, he's hanging out on the cross. He tells John to take care of his mom. He's going to do his prerequisite, but that's not the priority. You need to do that to get to your priority. You cannot divorce loving and following Jesus from his kingdom and the local church. Can't do it. You cannot divorce Jesus from his kingdom. Don't divorce the king from his kingdom. Don't divorce the bridegroom from his bride. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. If Christ is your priority, then seek first his kingdom. If the bridegroom is your priority, then love the bride as your priority. The scripture won't let you put these asunder. So we've covenanted as BBC. I mean, when we do our church covenant, we say this one line and it seems so harmless. We, we promise to give the church sacred preeminence 
over all institutions of human authority, of human origin. What does that mean? That the church is the priority. The church is the priority. That's what we've covenanted to do. We don't put that over our family or over the government. Those are all three equal institutions, but there is a priority. There's an order. We, I need to have a good marriage, and I need to love my wife. I need to love my kids. I love them. I need to, as prerequisite for, for the big call of my life, which is disciple all nations, the Great Commission. That's the goal. That's the priority. But I need to do this. If I don't do that well, I can't fulfill that. I'm a hypocrite, right? So it's a prerequisite. So God mercifully lets you feel your emptiness, your futility, your meaninglessness as a frustration so that your temp- his temple becomes your priority over your other agendas. So here's what God does for us mercifully. He makes our spouses disappoint us. Praise God that your spouses disappoint you. Praise God that they fail you because Jesus is Jesus, not your spouse. Praise God that your kids rebel because Jesus is Jesus and not your kids. Praise God that those little cute babies where you seem like you just want to give them the whole world, that they make dirty, stinky diapers. It's a reality check. I'm not Jesus. Smell this. Right? That's kindness from God. And then the kids start to get potty trained. So then now you could really adore them. But then when they wake up now, they don't have the, the breast milk breath. They have morning breath. So they might not, they might, they might not have diapers anymore, but you, you want to hug them in the morning, but their breath smells so bad. And Jesus reminds you, that they're not Jesus. And then your kids grow up and move out anyways, don't they? So if they become your treasure, guess what? You put in the wrong spot. And then what about work and career? Doesn't work and career frustrate you? Does that fulfill you at the end of the day that you get all your career goals accomplished and check off all the boxes of all the things you wanted to do? Does that fulfill? When you reach the mountaintop of your career, do you finally feel satisfied and fulfilled? Not if God is merciful. He makes it futile and meaningless so that you see the real priority. God designs these things to form and fit you for his kingdom and for temple building, not to distract you from his kingdom and temple building. If you're not a Christian, have you felt the emptiness of your ambitions and your pursuits? Or are you still deluded in thinking that there is some relationship, some career opportunity, some mountain that if you climb that mountain, then you will find flourishing fulfillment? I warn you and tell you now in all the love and mercy I can muster that it is not flourishing fulfillment. It is fleeting futility. Please see it before it's too late. Christian, what is your priority? I'm not saying priorities. Your priority, singular. What is first? What do you seek first? First. Really, look at your week, look at your life. What do you seek first? Is it obvious and clear to those around you? If they knew your life and schedule and money and time and emotions and daydreams, they would know what is first. What is it? Have we become sloppy and careless in our thinking? It says think carefully here several times, right? Have we become so sloppy and, and in our thinking that we just know that God wants us to provide for a household and family and church that we just think that they're all kind of just the same thing? Or have we thought carefully about how these obligations relate so that we keep our priority our priority and not lose sight are we building our paneled houses while god's house lies in ruins as a church family let's let's look at the mirror of our church are we a church church worth investing in is this church doing god's work god's way or should we be or should you be part of another church 
Are we truly Christ-centered and Christ-shaped and Christ-expanding, faithfully seeking God's kingdom first and not ours? What does our budget show? Does our budget reflect this? Here's good news. Praise God that he turns our wannabe treasures into trash so that these treasures become transformative paths to seeking Christ and his kingdom first. Praise God that there's no earthly treasure that will last. On your funeral day, all the stuff that you built and want to pass on, worthless. Any earthly treasure, worthless. Just leave enough, John Wesley said to the elderly, just leave enough for your kids. Don't leave them to be too rich or else you'll just tempt them to to set their minds on earthly things. Give them enough for their needs and give the rest to the kingdom of God. Do it. It's a good thing to do. So examine your priority and build the church so that you experience flourishing fulfillment and not fleeting futility. First of all, because God makes our earthly ambitions worthless. Number two, I told you that was a long one. The first one's a long one. Let's go to three, uh, four shorter ones. Number two, second reason why you need to build the church, it's because God rouses your spirit. Look at verses 12 through 15. In verse 12, then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the entire remnant of the people feared or obeyed the Lord, their God, and the words of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord God had sent him. So the people feared Yahweh. So they fear God, they obey God. Look at verse 13. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, delivered the Lord's message to the people. Here's God's promise. I am with you as you build. This is the Lord's declaration. And here's the grace. I want you to see the beauty of Jesus, the beauty of God right here in verse 14. When God gives us a command, this is so sweet, verse 14, the Lord roused the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, the spirit of the high priest Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, and he roused the spirit of all the remnant of the people. They began work on the house of Yahweh of armies, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius, 520 BC. That's sometime in August. So God rouses their spirit to obey, and do they obey, yes or no? Yes. Praise God that he rouses our spirits. If not, we would be so hard-hearted and lazy, and we wouldn't fulfill any desire for good. The good news is, Philippians 2.13 says, 2.12 says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What does verse 13 say of Philippians 2? For it is God who is what? Working where? In you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Anytime you have a good idea and a good thing to do for God's kingdom, guess who gave that to you? Guess who's working in you? God. Anytime you actually do a good thing that you you plan to do, some of you are thinking about who you're going to serve after this, who are you going to talk to after this, who are you going to stir up to love and good works. If you have a burden for anyone else in this church today that you're going to talk to after the service, who put that in your heart? God did. If you actually execute and encourage that person, who did that? God working in you. God rouses our spirits to build the church. That's what he does. Praise God. Christian, has God roused you up to obey him? Has he roused you up to build his temple? Has he given you desires for his purpose? If he has, then work it out in your life. May God fulfill every desire you have for good. Church family, God has roused up Bethany Baptist Church. Let me encourage you for a second. Church family, 89 members of BBC, be encouraged. On even Jean who devoted her life, Al who devoted their lives, members here who passed away who devoted their lives, God has roused up the spirits of Bethany Baptist Church. The Lord is with you, BBC. You give. You attend. You're here. You attend regularly, and attending is 51% of your ministry. The other 49% is what you do when you're here. But over half of your ministry is just being here, and you're here. You attend. You gospelize each other. 
You tell each other about Christ. You influence each other towards Jesus. You disciple one another. You serve. You love each other. You express your love on email and through conversations. Brothers and sisters, Bethany Baptist Church, you are building a faithful expression of the kingdom of God right here in Southeast LA. It's happening right here in front of our eyes. God is doing it and he's roused your spirits to do it. You are the ones building this church. And as your pastor, one of your pastors, I salute you. I praise God for you. I thank God for you. Sometimes I can't believe what's happening in some ways. Not that in the world's eyes this is big and flourishing, but to see what God is doing in our midst, it encourages my soul deeply. And I thank God for you. I appreciate you loved ones so much. May God alone get all the glory for what he's doing here. He has roused up your spirit. If you're not a Christian, you coming here this morning is evidence that God loves you and God's being gracious to you right now. But this grace is not necessarily saving grace. God would have you. He would desire that you repent from your sins and trust in Jesus. You should ask God to... to, to make your spirit come alive, to cause you to be born again. Because you can't give the new birth to yourself. You can't rouse your own spirit on your own. You can ask God to forgive you of not having a priority on Christ, not trusting in Jesus, and then ask God to give you a heart to trust in Jesus and live for him. The good news for us all is that God works his almighty and infinite power in us as a church. He's been working in us as a church since 1949. I just did a church history class this morning for our, those considering membership. God's been working in this church. Praise God. So we should examine our priorities and build the church. Why? Because God makes everything else futile. Number two, because he rouses our spirits to build up the church. A third reason why we should build the church as our priority. Build the church as your priority because God is with you and he will use you. Look at chapter two, verses one through nine. Look at chapter two, verses one through three first. On the 21st day, so this is of the seventh month, the 21st day, because the other, earlier it was the 24th day of the sixth month, so just about three or four weeks later, on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to the high priest of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and to the remnant of the people. So talk to all the people. Here's what you're to say to them. Verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Now, which house looked better? The one Zerubbabel was rebuilding or Solomon's temple? Which one looked better? Solomon's temple. So here's what God says in his last question, verse three. Doesn't it seem to you like nothing by comparison? So here's a good grace of God. God met them and he meets us in our discouragement. You ever get discouraged personally in your own Christian life? You get discouraged about your own growth? Do you get discouraged about our church? There's a lot of things to be discouraged about in the church. There's a lot of needs. There's a lot of sin you get discouraged? God meets them in their discouragement. He said, look at, look at Zerubbabel's buildings of a temple, the beginnings of the temple. Look at Solomon's beautiful, glorious temple. Is this discouraging to you? Does this seem small to you, Israel? Does BBC, look around. I mean, look at how many empty chairs we have. Does this seem small to you? Insignificant? Meaningless? Discouraging? Brothers and sisters, don't despise the day of small things. Don't trust what your eyes initially see. Trust God and give yourself fully to his command, even when you can't see the whole picture. Because let me tell you now, you will never see the whole picture of what you're doing in this life until we die and we meet Christ. What you do in this church, what you do to build each other up and go with each other to disciple the neighbors and the nations, you will never see the full picture here. You can't see the full significance of what you're doing when you sing a song, crying on the side, barely getting your voice out because you're so burdened and broken. 
You don't know what good that's doing in our church, but it's doing good in our church. And God has put that as part of his tapestry of what he's, of what he's weaving together for his glory. Don't be discouraged by the small things you see. Look at verses four and five. Not only does he encourage us, look at verses four and five. Even so, be strong. Here's a command. Be strong, Zerubbabel. This is the Lord's declaration. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land. This is the Lord's declaration. That's the command. Why? Or one more command. Work. Why? For I am what? I am with you. The Lord's declaration, the Lord of armies. This is my promise. This is the promise I made to you when you came out of Egypt. And my spirit is what? Present among you. Don't be afraid. Ben's teaching. If Ben was not teaching, I would say, Ben, be strong. That's what he's saying to the leaders. Be strong. Deacons, Jim, be strong. Deaconesses to come, perhaps. Leaders of this church, be strong. All the members of Bethany Baptist Church, be strong. Work. Build the temple. Why? God is with you. Don't be afraid of wasting your life. You will not waste your life building the temple of God. That's impossible. You can't waste your time doing that because that's the priority. Seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You can't waste your time seeking first God's kingdom and his righteousness. It's impossible. So be strong. Don't be scared that you're making the wrong investment. Invest in God's people. That's the right priority. God is with you. And then go to verses six through nine here. Here's another promise in, um, that God will use us. Verse six says, the Lord of armies says this, once more in a little while, I'm going to take the, to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations so that all the treasures of all the nations will come and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of armies. The silver and the gold belong to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. The final glory of this house will be greater than Solomon's, the first, says the Lord of armies. I will provide peace in this place, This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. What is God promising? God will use your work in this small little thing called the church, and he'll fill it with the glory of the nations. God is drawing nations to local churches all over the world that they might come to know Christ. We are sending missionaries. We're praying for missionaries. We hope to send our own missionaries. We support missionaries. Why? Because God is gathering his people. He's shaking the nations upside down and and all the treasures and all the people and all their goods are coming to be built up for the kingdom so that every tongue, tribe, nation, language will be before God on the final day celebrating Christ. God is gathering and he's bringing peace to, to the temple. Look at verse uh, nine again, I will provide peace in this place. How does God provide peace from all the nations for, for his temple? What did he do in Jerusalem? This is in Jerusalem. Where did Christ die? In Jerusalem. Right there, right outside, the, right outside the walls of Jerusalem. God provided peace for the world through Christ dying, the temple being broken, Christ's body being broken on the cross, and him rising on the third day so that God would build his temple, the church of God, until Christ returns and the new creational temple is here. And God's peace will be there because of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. So brothers and sisters, trust God will use this church to bring glory among the nations. We pray that we'll not only support a mission board, but we'll personally support missionaries and send missionaries and be missionaries. And if you're not a Christian, I ask you again, if you're not a Christian, what's your purpose in life? What are you chasing after? The good news is God is with us so we don't have to move forward alone. He's with us and he's telling us, I will use Bethany Baptist Church. I will use you, church member, to build up this church. 
So examine your priority. Build the church as your priority. Why? Because God makes all else futile, because he rouses our spirits to, to build, and because God will use us. Here's a fourth reason why we should build the church as our priority. Verses 10 through 19, build the church because God has used you up until this point. Up until this day, October 6, 2019, just think about your past. All the way up until this point, God has used you. Look at verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord of armies says. Ask the priests for a ruling. If a man is carrying consecrated meat in the fold of his garment and touches, it touches the bread, stew, wine, oil, or any other food, does it become holy? Okay, look up here. Don't look at the answer there. Look here. So if a priest who's holy is touching bread, does it become holy? Yes or no? What do you think? For your Old Testament understanding. No? Okay, what's the answer here? The priest answered what? No. Okay, here's a second question. If someone defiled by contact with a corpse touches any of these, does it become defiled? Answer that. Yes. If you're defiled and you touch something like bread, that bread becomes defiled. So the priest answered, it becomes defiled. So here's, here's the conclusion of that. If you touch a defiled thing, it becomes defiled. Verse 14. Then Haggai replied, so is this people. And so is this nation, this holy nation before me. This is the Lord's declaration. And so is every work of their hands, even what they offer is defiled. Wow, do you feel that? Everything you do is defiled. My preaching, try to preach my heart out, and it's defiled. Everything I touch, I'm a sinner, right? You're a sinner. Even our good works are defiled. What does Isaiah call it? Our good works are like what? Filthy rags. Even our best works are tainted with our own sin and self-centeredness and God belittling. That could be discouraging that we're all defiled. The holy nation is defiled. And then read on. What else are we? Verse 15. Now from this day on, think carefully. There's the command again. Think carefully. Do self-examination. Examine your priority. Before one stone was placed on another in the Lord's temple, what state were you in? When someone came to a grain heap of 20 measures, it only amounted to 10. And when one came to the wine press to dip 50 measures from the vat, it only amounted to 20. Verse 17. I struck you all the works of your hands, with blight, mildew, and hail, but you didn't turn to me. This is the Lord's declaration. So what is God saying? I ruined your goals. That's what I did. I made everything meaningless. And did you turn to me? Yes or no? Did you repent? Yes or no? No. For 16 years, they didn't rebuild the temple. Remember? They built it and they left it for 16 years, and God was striking down their ambitions, earthly ambition after earthly ambition after earthly ambition. Did they repent? No, they didn't repent. That's discouraging. Not only are we defiled, we're unrepentant. We don't repent even when God is showing us the futility of our ways. If we find one earthly treasure that doesn't work, we just look for another earthly treasure. It's like we don't get it. But look at verse 18. Here's the encouragement because that was really discouraging up to verse 17. From this day on, think carefully. From the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, because they just had a, a celebration ceremony of laying the foundation, think carefully. Is there still seed left in the granary? The vine, the fig, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yet produced, because I cursed them for all these years. But guess what? Look at this. Here's the encouragement, this last phrase. But from this day on, I will what? Bless you. They had come, they got, they got warned in August, August 520 BC, go build the temple. So they started building the temple. Now it's December 520 BC, and God says, you guys were defiled, you guys were unrepentant, but guess what? You laid the foundation. You laid the foundation of this temple. And from this day on, all your crops have been plagued because of my judgment on you. But guess what? From this day on, I will what? I'll bless you. I'm going to cause you to flourish. 
I have used you up until this point for the last three months, four months. You built the foundation of the temple. Good job. And now from this point on, I'm going to bless you. So the point here is, why should you build the church? Because God has used you to lay a foundation. He's used you up until this point to build the church. And he promises he's going to bless you because you're in Abraham's seed, Jesus Christ. BBC, you have done good works. Church member, you've done good works. God has used you. I want you, Christian church member, to be encouraged that God, as a Christian, has used you in everything you've done. Everything good you've done has been God using you. Be encouraged by that. Church family, let me encourage you one more time here. You have gospelized, you've discipled, you've cared for one another, you've made new friends, and you've become a sweet and loving family. I just look around. How did, I, did all of you get, none of us, most of us here didn't know each other four years ago, did we? What, ha, what has BBC become to you? Has it become your family? I mean, just look around at how, look how short you've known each other here, uh, most of you here. And what has God done? What is he doing? He has made us friends and family, a sweet, loving church family. I know we have our flaws and we don't love perfectly, but what have we done as, at this church? Have we laid a foundation? In 2016, you slightly revised our church covenant. Some of you were there for that. You cleaned the membership role almost completely, and you've done it respectfully. You've clarified our confession of faith. You have raised up a plurality of pastors. You have been giving to the Southern Baptist Convention for missions. You've given to and birthed Shepherd LA to bless other LA pastors and other LA churches, and not just focus on our local church in Los Angeles. God has used you, Bethany Baptist Church, and he will use you still more. He will bless you. Our church is small. We have many missing chairs, a lot of empty seats to fill perhaps, but God has used you and he will still use you again. He will bless you. We don't know what specific ways God will use our church and use us, but isn't it a joy and adventure to find out? I mean, I'm excited. I don't know what God's going to do next year. I don't know what he's going to do this, the next coming months, but it's an adventure to walk with God as a church family and just trust him as we try to build his church. We are part of God's story. We are part of God's plan. You are building up God's temple. Okay, so that's the fourth reason. Build the church as your priority because God makes all else futile, because he rouses your spirit to build, because he will use you, and because he has used you. And the last reason here why you should build the church as your priority is because God will exalt Zerubbabel. You're saying, that doesn't motivate me, PJ. That doesn't make me love BBC anymore, that God's going to exalt, exalt Zerubbabel. I don't even like saying that word, Zerubbabel. Well, look at verses 20 through 22. Here's God's promise of final judgment, the end time promise. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of that month in December. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and destroy the power of the Gentile kingdoms. Right now, the Babylonian kingdom was already destroyed. Now it's the Persian kingdom that will be destroyed. Then the Greek, then the Romans. I will destroy the power of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overturn chariots and their riders. Horses and their riders will fall, each by his brother's sword. So God will overturn and bring final judgment on all nations. There's only one holy nation, the covenant Israelic nation, under the old Israelic covenant and under the new Israelic covenant now. That's the only holy nation. All other nations will fall. God will shake them all up. So what's his promise in verse 23? On that day, this day of final judgment, this is the declaration of the Lord of armies. I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant. This is a huge promise. This is the Lord's declaration. Are you guys ready? This is what God's going to do to Zerubbabel. I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you. 
This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. God will make Zerubbabel his signet ring. Amazing. And after this verse, do you hear about Zerubbabel anywhere else in the Bible? No. What happened to this verse? How is Zerubbabel made his signet ring? Well, Zerubbabel is the son of Shealtiel. Shealtiel is the son of Jeconiah. And in, in Jeremiah 22, verses 24 to 30, read it for homework. God curses Jeconiah and his offspring, his descendants. He says, you disobeyed me when I took Jerusalem out into exile. I, I, I cursed you and said, your descendants will not sit on the throne. Problem is, Jeconiah is the son of David. If David's seed is going to sit on the throne and rule forever, but Jeconiah's seed is not going to rule on the throne, how does that work? Well, here God is restoring the line, in a sense, with Zerubbabel. I will make Zerubbabel Jeconiah's grandson. I will restore him as my signet ring of authority. A signet ring was how you, you signed things. If the king wanted to make a declaration and sign in a law, he would just put his ring on the wax, and his ring was his signature. That was his authority. So he's saying the Davidic son will be his ring, his signet ring, his authority in the world when he shakes up the nations. Who is that Davidic son who is the signet ring of God over all nations and will be on the final judgment day? What is his name? Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham, son of Mary, and, and son, son by law of Joseph, son of David. Jesus is the signet ring. And so here God is promising that he will raise up the Messiah, the Davidic king, to rule over the nations. So why should you, why should they build the church or build the temple? Because the rubble is going to rise. Why should you build Bethany Baptist Church? Because God will exalt who? Jesus Christ. He humbled himself, became a servant by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God what? Highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will what? Confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God will exalt Jesus. Zerubbabel, the signet ring. Jesus, son of David, son of Zerubbabel, Jesus will be exalted in the end. So why waste your time, waste your time? Why invest your time in building up your local church? Because Christ will be exalted on the final day. And you will not be embarrassed or ashamed or regretful that you spent time building up your local church. It's all for the glory of Christ. And so if you're not a Christian, recognize Jesus as your King and Lord. Receive him as your King and Savior. God has and will exalt Christ the King, so we will gladly build his temple because it's our joy and honor to live for his glory. Church family and Christian, let's focus on Christ Jesus the King, the signet ring, as we seek the kingdom and the new creational temple to come, as we build each other up. Let's be a Christ-centered church, not a church-centered church. Let's not focus on each other. Let's focus on Jesus together. Jesus is the king who died for us and is exalted for and by and with us. So why should we build the church as our priority? Why? Because he makes all else futile. Because he rouses your spirit to obedience. Because he will use you and he's with you. Because he has used you in the past. And because he will exalt Christ Jesus. And your devotion to your local church is one of the ways you invest in the exaltation of Christ. What's my final call to you? My final call to you 
is not to give more money to church. Though some of you need to do that. Some of you haven't given. Some of you have made it a habit to not give yourself and money. Some of you haven't increased your giving for years. The percentage, it's been the same percentage for years. When was the last time you kind of looked at your budget with your spouse and said, I think we could give more to the spread of the gospel and the building of the church? That would be one way of showing a priority. Now, a lot of you give faithfully. I'm not saying that because our church is behind. Our church is over in our giving. So I'm not saying that out of, a, oh, here comes PJ with a, with a money rant. You guys have been faithful in giving, at least the ones who have been giving. And the church has been given enough. We're actually projecting today in our budget meeting our next year's giving. And it's, I mean, it's way above what it was this year. So, um, so you have been generous, those of you who have been giving. But those who haven't, you should think about that. But here's the bigger call. Give your life to Jesus and his church. Give your life to these 89 members. Well, you're one of them, so give your life to the 88 other people of this church. Give yourself to them. That's what you've done, actually, when you became a member. Invest your life. Your money and your time will follow, but invest yourself in these people, and you will, you will have the right priority, and you will not regret it on Judgment Day, rather than building up your paneled houses, as they did here, for 16 years neglecting the house of God. What will you want to be said at your funeral? What will you want to have devoted your life to? What will you want to have been and have done when you stand before King Jesus? You want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. May it be that you constantly have examined your life, thought carefully, examined your priority, and devoted your life joyfully to building your local church, as long as you're a member here and whatever church you join after this. May it be that you have joyfully devoted your life to those people. Let's sit in silence for one minute to reflect before I close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you haven't confused our lives with priorities, but you've given us the priority, your kingdom, your righteousness, your new creation temple. Forgive us for focusing on our paneled houses and the other prerequisites of our Christian life that are good, that we've actually neglected our priority. Help us to strive for excellence at work, at school, in the home, with our finances, with our time, with our relationships. But help us to do all of that in service of the priority, your kingdom, your temple, your people.
Thank you for clarifying these things to us. We pray that we would examine ourselves and make concrete adjustments that we will not regret on the judgment day to come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.